Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. On this week's show, author and Fordham alumnus Robert Hinckley talks about his book, Time to Change Corporations, Closing the Citizenship Gap. In it, he details ways to make corporations more socially responsible. Then WFUV's Jake Neer gives us a listen to the really terrible orchestra of Westchester, a group that is proud to be musically disadvantaged. But first, Robert Hinckley. Good morning, Robin. Now, before we get into the book, I'd like to discuss the tobacco company that you started. So can you please share the name and the motto of the company? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, About a dozen years ago, um, someone contacted me that was uh, leading a uh, protest against corporate tobacco. And I suggested to them that the way one thing they might do is to set up a corporation that was very specific about its purpose. Every corporation that uh, sets up in this country files a certificate of incorporation with the state authorities. And it details in that uh, document what its purpose is. And most corporations put down to engage in any business permitted by the laws of the state of New York, for instance. Um, And this is something that corporate lawyers have uh, come up with over many years, and it's generally just copied because it gives corporate directors the widest possible latitude in running their business. So what we did is we set up a corporation in Virginia, which was the home of a big tobacco company. And instead of saying that the purpose of our company was just to engage in any business permitted by the laws of Virginia, we added something to that. We said, including but not limited, the um, manufacturer and marketing of tobacco in a way that kills 500,000 Americans every year and more than 4 million other people. So you were blunt. <laughs> we were blunt. And then we, uh, to sort of put a star on the top of the tree, we called the company License to Kill, Inc. There were some very clever people that put the plan into action. I just set up the corporate documents. But that was that brings us to the point of how corporations are set up and how easy it is for corporations to become or companies to become incorporated. Sure. I mean, I, I set up License to Kill, Inc. from my home in Maine at the time. All I did was mail in a one-page document together with a check for $75, and License to Kill was formed. We had everything that was necessary at that point to really go into business, manufacturing and marketing tobacco. But you didn't go into business. That wasn't the purpose. (laughs) Right. But the purpose was to show how easy it is for a company to become incorporated. And and the interesting part about it, the local papers in Richmond uh, caught on to this, and they called the State Corporations Commission, and they said, well, how did you let these guys incorporate? And the people in the state government said, we didn't want to. But there was nothing we could do about it, and that was exactly the point. There was nothing they could do about it. And it's time to change corporations, I think, so that when you get a corporate charter, um, you have to respect the public interest, the public health and safety in this case, as well as uh, make money. So, Bob, in your book, you talk about the Code for Corporate Citizenship. What exactly is that? The code is 28 words that would get added to the corporate law in every state. Every state has its own corporate law that laid out, among other things, the responsibility for people who run corporations, directors. And in every state, it more or less sells their duty is to act in the best interest of the corporation. And this imposes on directors a compelling need to make money. And you'll notice there's no qualification as to how they make money. As long as they make money within the law, 
then they're doing their job. The problem is there's a lot of things that are legal these days that harm the public interest in serious ways uh, and are not prohibited. They're, they're perfectly legal. Give me an example. Do you have well, an example? a good example is pollution, uh, global, uh, uh, the emission of greenhouse gases, the tobacco industry killing millions of people every year, um, violations of human rights in the third world. Why aren't these human rights relevant to CEOs in addition to our people and companies, in addition to making money for their corporation? Now, this is a really good question because this is how I got started on this. About 12 years ago, I uh, was having lunch with a professor of social policy, and he said to me, Bob, I'm trying to get corporations to uh, recognize human rights in the workplace. And he says, I meet with CEOs uh, of big companies, and they, they look at me like it's not part of my job. They're not opposed to human rights in the workplace, but they just don't think it's relevant to what they do. And it's a non-issue for them. <laughs> it's a non-issue. And I said, well, that's exactly right, Stuart. Uh, their job is to act in the best interest of the corporation and to obey the law. Um, as long as they're doing that, they don't have to worry about human rights in the workplace. They can they can run sweatshops in the third world and uh, pay people less than a working wage uh, or, excuse me, a living wage. Um, it's not their... Uh, it's not their problem. And he says, great, write me a chapter for a book about that. I, ended, I started writing the chapter, and I realized I ought to come up with a solution. And as a corporate lawyer and a corporate lawyer who had done some takeover work, I was very familiar with statutes in this country. There's about 35 states that have what's called stakeholder statutes. And they say that directors may, in the course of running their business and pursuing the company's best interests, also consider factors such as the environment and employees and suppliers and the communities in which they operate. And I started thinking about that, and I said, well, the problem with that is they only use that as a defense to takeovers. They use it once in their lives, maybe. Why couldn't that happen 24 hours a day, 365 days a year? And so I came up with a code for corporate citizenship, which is essentially 28 words that will get added to the duty of directors. The existing duty is to act in the best interest of the corporation. And the 28 words are, but not at the expense of the environment, human rights, the public health and safety, the dignity of employees, and the welfare of the communities in which the corporation operates. It seems like this is a simple enough premise. You can make money, but you can also be socially responsible. Why hasn't it taken off? Why aren't corporations doing it right now? Well, the trend for the past 30 years, to tell you the truth, has been in the opposite direction. Um, there has been a thought in this country and around the world that the only thing that matters to voters is the, is the economy. In the last 10 years, actually, there has been a movement towards questioning business, questioning Wall Street, questioning the whole premise of whether or not corporations should only be about uh, making money. You know, it's interesting because 200 years ago, when this country got started, corporations weren't all about making money. They had um, provisions in their corporate charters that said they had to respect the public interest. And it wasn't until shortly after the Civil War that corporate statutes started getting changed to eliminate this need to respect the public interest. Um, now, why did it begin to change? Well, it was called the race to the bottom. 
the the race to the bottom occurred uh, uh, when the Industrial Revolution in this country started to take hold in the second half of the 19th century after the Civil War. And state legislators found it desirable to have big companies set up in their jurisdiction, in their state. Um, and they thought that the corporations would bring factories and jobs and uh, more taxes, uh, all sorts of good things like that. But what, they, what, what they found out over time was that one state won the race to the top, uh, race to the bottom, Delaware. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but about 60% of the Fortune 500 these days is incorporated in Delaware. But those companies don't have factories in Delaware. They don't put people to work in Delaware. And the amount of taxes they pay are minimal. I think the entire corporate franchise tax in that state is less than $2 billion. Now, that's nothing to sneeze at. But in the total scheme of things these days, $2 billion, $2 billion would be a small price to pay for a cleaner environment, no abuse of human rights, uh, companies respecting the dignity of employees, the public health and safety being protected, uh, and the welfare of our communities being looked after. Now, can we back up a little and talk a little more about the history of how that, that was developed? Because I, I find your book, uh, which is called Time to Change Corporations from Bob Hinckley, you delve into initially how corporations were funded um, and supported and why they changed. So can we talk more about that? And I mean specifically pre-race to the bottom. People don't realize this, but uh, some some states fought the Revolutionary War because they were trying to get out from underneath King George's corporations. And once we had our own country, um, we didn't have very many corporations in existence. Um, and the only way you could get a corporate charter would was to go to the state legislature and have the legislature create a new company. Um, this was quite cumbersome. And... In about 1811, I think it was New York State was one of the first to do it, if not the first, um, they came up with the idea of instead of making the state legislature vote every time you wanted to set up a new company, why don't we set up a corporation law, general corporation law, and uh, all you'll have to do is to file that one piece of paper that I filed in Virginia and send us a check and you'll have a corporation. you, you got to follow certain rules, and you got to have a corporation that complies with our directives. Um, those directives at the time, again, were much more restrictive. There were restrictions on the size of the corporation. There were restrictions on the businesses they could engage in. There was restrictions on the fact that they weren't supposed to run their business in a way that harmed the public interest. And if they did, they could find their charter being revoked or not renewed. In the old days, we didn't have perpetual, uh, perpetual corporations. We had corporations who had a charter for a limited period of time, say 20 or 25 years, and then they had to go back and get it renewed. And what that meant was they were under the, they were on a short lease from the state legislature because if the corporation did something that displeased them, harmed the public interest, they could lose their charter. So they, for the most part, were good citizens back then. They were more human. Um, with the change that made it all about money, all about uh, the best interest of the corporation, all of a sudden they took on a whole new character in our society. You, we have to remember that democracy is founded on the premise that human beings are capable of governing themselves and protecting the public interest. 
with a system of self-imposed laws, that is, laws passed by our democratically elected representatives. Now, when this system came into play 230 years ago, um, the only thing government had to govern was people. It didn't have to govern the modern corporation, which did not exist. And what we've come to understand over the last 120 years is the corporations, although they only act through people, they act, they're people acting pursuant to rules, and this gives them a much different character than people acting individually. Corporations have many, many times more capacity to harm the public interest than human beings do. And the result is that every day we see tremendous damage to the environment, human rights, the public health and safety, the dignity of employees, and the welfare of our communities, which is carried out in a way that is perfectly legal. Now, the way it's perfectly legal is interesting because corporations, rather than stop their abuse once it's discovered, like a human being will mm -hmm. generally, they make the problem worse. They and their trade association lobby our elected representatives to make laws that are favorable to their interest and allow them to keep money, making money at uh, the expense of the public interest. In a sense, they forestall, delay, keep government from doing its job, which is protecting the public interest. And when that happens, we got a real problem. Uh, Thomas Paine, one of the founding fathers, said a government that is not able to protect the public interest is worse than no government at all. I mean, a lot of people these days talk about how there's a problem in Washington or there's a problem in Albany or where I'm from these days, a problem in Annapolis, I guess, in that government is not able to protect the public interest. And nobody can quite figure out why. But this is the answer, and that is corporations are very different. Remember I said they they act pursuant to rules. Well, one, the one rule that they act pursuant to is they must act in their own interest. And now let me put it to you this way. You're a big tobacco company operating in the 1930s or a tobacco industry. And along, somewhere along the line, you start to figure out that you're killing your customers. And about maybe 10, 15, maybe 20 years later, the government figures it out. What is the tobacco industry supposed to do? What are its directors supposed to do where they got hundreds of billions of dollars invested? That's the problem. This, this law that says they have a duty to act only in the corporation's best interest gives them a compelling need to continue. So what do they do? They go to Congress, they go to their state legislatures, and they try to forestall any new legislation that will cut in their, to their ability to be, do business as usual. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon talking with Robert Hinckley, who penned the book Time to Change Corporations. In it, he details his ideas for ways to make corporations better citizens. How did we get to a place where corporations just stopped caring? Well, it, it, it started out, like I said, after the Civil War with states changing their general corporation law so that the only duty of directors was to act in the company's best interest. The and part of that had something to do um, with, in your book, Time to Change Corporations, you talk a little about how at one point you could have sued the corporation 
as well as the members of the corporation. Could you explain that? Um, oh, as that has to, to do, that has to do with why we have corporations. Actually, this part of the story takes place <laughs> even before colonial times. You have to recognize that the only reason that corporations exist is that there's laws that make them exist. And then the question is, well, why were those laws ever passed? And there's a really simple, and it's it's an answer that makes sense. Actually, without those laws. What you would essentially have is a bunch of people operating a business as a partnership. And now the problem with the partnership form is that everybody who owns the partnership is liable for everything that takes place in the partnership, including borrowing money, the negligence of employees, and that sort of thing. So it's what you have call unlimited liability. And so somebody came up with a great so idea. So let me ask you, if I am somebody who, you own a company, I am somebody who gets harmed by your, comp- by your company, I can now sue your company, you, and everybody who's a Owns partner a company with, with you. That's and, right. and that's not beneficial because why? Well, that's not beneficial because it gets in the way of creating capital, big companies. Now, there's people out there argue you don't have to have big companies, but... I won't go there, and I and I don't think that's right. I think capital formation is a good thing to have in a society. Um, I've been a corporate lawyer all my life. How can I say anything else? Um, it's good why. Yeah, uh, but but so what happened was somebody came up with a great idea, and some type people say it was in Venice in fifteen hundred, and other people say it was England in sixteen hundred. But the idea was that the monarch, the king, the sovereign, would pass a law that says this corporation can exist. And if it does bad or owes money and goes out of business, you can only sue the corporation. You can't sue its shareholders. It's a concept called limited liability. And it's been around for that long. Um, and that's good because why? It, it's good because it allows people to put money in a company without fearing that it's going to cost them their house, their boat, and their every, every other asset that they own. Mm-hmm. They can put a certain amount of money at risk. And they're and only hope liable it grows. For that and, they're, of money. and well, they're not even liable for that. I mean, they've paid that. It's Yes. Someone gets if they get if the company gets sued. Then That's after right. that, then the only person you can only be liable up to the amount that you yes. uh, invested. So now I don't have to. I, I'm I'm more willing to invest in something. As a as a corporate lawyer, I'd say they <laughs> put their money in, and if the money goes out, if the company goes out of business, you've lost all your money, mm-hmm. and that's right. That's, but if it's grown, then you get to be a it billionaire. Will, it, it allows you to take <laughs> risks, and that's... Uh, and that was the good part of and it. And it, it funds an incredible amount of research and development that de- turn into things like uh, Microsoft and medicines we have. Um, there's a lot of good things about corporations, and uh, and we shouldn't get rid of the idea of capital formation. What we ought to do is change it so that it isn't so destructive, um, so that it's more benign, and I would say so that's more human. Robert, how did the current system of laws benefit corporations and encourage their antisocial behavior? Most corporations are small businesses. And for the most part, they're good citizens. And the reason they are is because if they're not, it'll reflect on the local owner and he will lose business. The corporations become a problem as a citizen when they get big enough uh, and widespread enough where their local reputation doesn't matter that uh, that much anymore to them. 
this is this is a problem that's been evolving over 125 years. Um, it took a long time for corporations to get to the point where they really didn't care how they made money anymore. Um, you know, you see companies. Uh, uh, in during the World War II era, era, after World War II, you know, there was a real sense of community. I mean, most big corporations, I saw an article just the other day, they don't have any loyalty to this country. They don't have any loyalty to the state they're incorporated in. They're about making money. And that is starting to become the mem, the, the uh, accepted uh, way that we operate. And it's... It, the code for corporate corporate citizenship is about changing that mindset. Hey, wait a minute. This doesn't make any sense. There's more to life than money. And what matters is how corporations make money. It's fine that they make money. There's nothing wrong with that. But why should we allow them to make money at the expense of the public interest, the environment, human rights? That doesn't make any sense. Think about it. Um, so what's the easiest way to change that? And I think I've come up with a pretty simple way. It's 28 words to the corporate law. Bob, what's the difference between a company obeying the law and a company respecting the law? All companies try to obey the law more or less. I mean, there's always uh, the rogue company out there. But for the most part, they hire big, fancy law firms, and they try to obey the law. The problem is the law gets tailored so specifically that there are numerous ways that they can run their business, still damage the public interest, but be do it legally. Um, it's very hard to craft a law uh, in such a way that's broad enough that prohibits antisocial behavior. I'll give you an example. The typical environmental law says you can only release 15 parts per billion. Okay, of whatever toxic chemical. I don't know what we're, which one doesn't matter at this point. So, right there, it's sanctioning up to 15 parts per billion every day. And pretty soon we start getting an argument in the legislature whether we can't go to 30 mm -hmm. or 45, allowing more pollution into the atmosphere. It makes more sense in my mind to tell corporations they're to make money, but not at the expense of the environment. Then they will find ways to reduce their pollution to zero. It can be done. They don't have to do it now, so they don't. But the thing about business people that I've learned in my 30 years as a corporate lawyer is that corporations follow rules. They can follow rules. And if you change the rules on them, they may scream bloody murder. But once they're changed, they buckle down and do what's necessary. And I think if we, we pass the code for corporate citizenship, what you'll see is you'll see a lot of businesses say, this wasn't such a bad idea. Um, because once you pass it, you'll be able to eliminate volumes of cumbersome, burdensome, less effective rules, regulations, and red tape, uh, and just let them essentially make sure they don't pollute the environment. To tell you the truth, capitalism will be reinvigorated. Um, and that's if it's if it's a different kind of capitalism, an evolved sort of capitalism, which is benign when it comes to the public interest, as opposed to seriously damaging it. Um, that's going to be a good thing. So take me through the steps, Bob. What's your first step for getting the code for corporate citizenship um, instituted? And then 
what's the next step and the next step to get citizens involved? Yeah, that's a good question. I've, I've spent almost 10 years writing this book. <laughs> um, so that was my first step. Um, but First step is read your book. <laughs> first step is read the book, Time to Change Corporation, Closing the Citizenship Gap, yes. Um, but also you can find out more about it on my website, Time to Change Corporations. Um, in addition, petitions have been set up on change.org to change the corporate law in each of the 50 states. Bob Hinckley, tell me what the code for corporate citizenship is. It's 28 words to get added to the duty of directors to act in the best interest of the corporation. Those words drive everything today that happens in a corporation. And the Code for Corporate Citizenship would change them by saying the duty of directors is to act in the best interest of the corporation, but not at the expense of the environment, human rights, the public health and safety, the dignity of employees, and the welfare of the communities in which the company operates. My thanks to author, corporate lawyer, and Fordham alum, Robert Hinckley. His book, Time to Change Corporations, Closing the Citizenship Gap, is out now. The New York area is known for its arts and culture. Here you can find some of the best artists and musicians in the world. But in the city of White Plains, you can find an orchestra with a different brand of talent. That is, no real talent at all. WFUV's Jake Neer has more. A violinist looks bewildered. She's lost her spot. But conventional wisdom says to keep playing no matter what, so she does. And soon enough, her bow is swinging upward in sync with the rest of the section. It's no tragedy for this small orchestra when something like that happens, even during their last rehearsal before a big performance. They've embraced not being perfect or even all that good. In fact, they've embraced being really terrible. Good. That was a lot better. Now, in the heat of the moment... I that's Nathaniel Chase, conductor of the really terrible orchestra of Westchester. Yes, that's what they choose to call themselves. Chase is relatively new to the orchestra, having joined the ragtag group in January after coming across a Craigslist ad seeking a conductor. Unlike everyone else in the group, he's a trained professional musician working all over the tri-state region. He says despite the name and an overall lack of skill... His first rehearsal with the really terrible orchestra didn't send him running for the door. I came in with no expectations because I just had no way of knowing. And I found that there were a lot of people who were all much better than they thought they were. They just needed a little bit of guidance and a little bit of support to realize more of their potential. But at least some members of the group had doubts about Chase's expectations when he first arrived. One of the original six members, Les Krasnagor, says he was a bit skeptical when the new conductor handed out sheet music for a new piece. So I looked at it at home, and I said, oh my God, look at that. How are we ever going to play that thing? He's crazy. So I come to rehearsal, and all of a sudden we're playing it. And it sounds good. I could not believe it. What happens is it's the human nature that you want to get better. So when you're playing regularly and you've got music to practice, people get better and everyone wants to get better. So what happens is we aren't so bad. That's orchestra founder Barbara Rosenthal. She started the group in 2009 after she found out about the really terrible orchestra of Scotland. Rosenthal quickly rounded up a whopping six members. Three years later, that number has more than quadrupled. 
They even have a spin-off group called the Really Terrible Dixieland Jazz Band of Westchester. She credits much of the success to their motto, if you have an instrument and a pulse, you're welcome. Most people feel that they're not good. It's just a universal feeling. I'm not good enough. Most people feel that way. And when they see that name, they say, well, I could play in that. Conductor Nathaniel Chase says the music's become less hard on the ears since he joined the group. He even says being known as the really terrible orchestra is a factor in that success. I, I don't think the name is deprecating at all. It's liberating, and it allows people to realize their full potential because they don't feel intimidated by having to achieve a certain standard that's set by another individual or a teacher or whatever. This afternoon, the group is giving their first performance with Chase at the helm. They're in a beautiful venue in Irvington with panoramic views of the Hudson River, which sits just feet outside the building. Patricia Waters sits in the first row of the audience. She's a professional pianist in Westchester County, and she's been to every one of the Really Terrible Orchestra's performances since the group started in 2009. Well, I, I know that music is just a very wonderful and important part of my life, and I'm happy that it can be part of other people's lives, too. And I don't really care if they're amateur or professional. It's just... It's just very uh, heartwarming to see. At intermission, Waters says she can tell they're getting better. There's a lot more precision, just concentration, and whoops, somebody dropped their violin. <laughs> well, maybe not so much concentration. <laughs> For more information on the really terrible orchestra of Westchester, you can email rtowest at gmail.com. I'm Jake Neer, WFUV News. That's it for this week's Fordham Conversations. You can also friend us on Facebook and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcast. Stay with us, George Bodarkey and Cityscaper next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.